Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. You know, I realized this morning as I was preparing for this program that today marks the fifth anniversary of the beginning of the Unite the Right rally that far-right mobilization turned violent at Charlottesville, Virginia, that in some sense was a harbinger for things to come at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th last year. With us to discuss his take on the ongoing and increasingly mainstreamed anti-democratic trend promoted by the right is Alan Singer. Dr. Singer is a U.S. historian and social studies educator in the Department of Teaching, Learning, Technology at Hofstra University, a graduate of the City College of New York with a Ph.D. in U.S. History from Rutgers. He is the author of, among a number of other titles, New York's Grand Emancipation Jubilee, Essays on Slavery, Resistance, Abolition, Teaching, and Historical Memory. A publicly engaged scholar as well, he also is a frequent columnist and commentator on such platforms as Daily Kos and the History News Network, among others. Uh, well, uh, Alan Singer, it's been some time since I've had you on, but welcome back to WORT. Thank you for having me, Alan. Um, I, I really welcome the opportunity to discuss these issues with you. You know, I thought we might begin with your take on some recent events, namely, of course, the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Florida Mar-a-Lago estate uh, as they were looking for boxes of government documents that Trump illegally removed from the White House. Actually, more to the point, uh, and more interest for, I think, for our program today, is the response to it by the Republican leadership. Trump's response was... Uh, to make all sorts of accusations against the Biden administration, that that was to be expected. But you have noted it. But you have noted that the entire Republican Party leadership echoed his claims more or less. Um, among them, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who accused the FBI and the Justice Department of quote another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. So, so I thought we'd start with, with Ron DeSantis. Okay. Well, uh, you know, he's a, a, leading, a leading contender in the 20, for 2024's Republican Party nomination. Um, you suggest he might be the scariest authoritarian operating in the U.S. and the United States today. How so? Well, this is the thing about... Uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis, and everything that's taking place there. And DeSantis is probably the number two candidate in the polls behind Trump amongst uh, Republican voters. And given all of Trump's issues, legal issues, Trump may not run. If he doesn't, DeSantis then moves to the head of the line. DeSantis is as nasty as Trump but he's much more disciplined. He doesn't, you know, change his mind on things. He has plans. Just recently, in an unprecedented action, DeSantis suspended an elected prosecutor in Tampa, Florida, charging that the prosecutor was in violation of Florida law because he wasn't vigorously prosecuting doctors who provided needed medical procedure to terminate a pregnancy. DeSantis, and this was is beyond in belief in some ways, actually declared war on Disney World. And because he charged that Disney World, because of his um, respect for Gay Pride Month and for recognizing humanity and rights of LGBTQ plus people, uh, 
that Disney World was kind of going against Florida values. And he removed tax breaks that they had to uh, enable the uh, their properties to, to operate. Of course, by doing that, he punished Orlando and the surrounding communities that depend on Disney World for people to make a living, but that didn't stop DeSantis. Florida recently also initiated a law to ban teaching about race and gender in schools because DeSantis and his supporters were concerned that this would make some white children uncomfortable. Now, I, I, I've looked at the curriculum, the K-12 curriculum in many states, including Florida. You know, first of all, no one was teaching critical race theory. What they were teaching kids is to understand the diversity of American society. No one is blaming six, seven, and eight-year-olds for the events of the past. But the belief is that six, seven, and eight-year-olds have to start to understand the nature of American society. And no one is recruiting six, seven, and eight-year-olds to become transgender. The curriculum in elementary schools in Florida, really, and across the country, is to look at how people are similar and different. And in the early grades, the focus is on families. Some people have one kind of family. Some people have another kind of family. But DeSantis declared war on this as a way of uh, getting support, riling up his right-wing, what he calls Christian base. I mean, act after act, the DeSantis has led the right-wing assault on democracy. Uh, he pushed through uh, gerrymandered districts uh, to get Democrats out of office in the state legislature. He plans to punish financial institutions that want to take factors like environmental destruction or social good into their investment decision. He wants to stop what he calls them woke banking. And then he plans to rewrite Florida's gun laws to allow people to carry firearms in public without a license or any kind of mandated training. There, there's a law professor at Nova uh, Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, and he charged there is no part of the Constitution in Florida now that is protecting democracy because checks and balances on him have been completely eviscerated. This is a quote. And the professor goes on to say, if DeSantis wins, he'll spin it as a mandate. He'll say, if Floridians didn't like any part of what I did, they wouldn't have voted for me. The entire Florida Republican Party is now lined up supporting DeSantis. But DeSantis's influence is national. After he removed the elect, uh, elected prosecutor, he was featured on Tucker Carlson's Fox show. And Carlson lauded DeSantis for, quote, finally doing something more than wine. And DeSantis is now scheduled to speak at Republican Party campaign rallies, New Mexico, Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania. This is the Republican Party endorsing right-wing extremism. This is not conservatism. Talk about what DeSantis calls his Civic Literacy Excellence Initiative. Well, what happens is, again, they're trying to rewrite the curriculum to tell the story the way they want it told. And, um, you know, again, he claims they're only teaching the accurate past. But the, I call it the uncivic illiteracy program. They had teachers take workshops <laughs> this summer to learn the program so they can implement it in their classrooms. The Miami Herald interviewed a number of the teachers who took part in the trainings. And they, these teachers exposed its ideological underpinnings. The, the new Florida civic standards portrays the founders 
as against the idea of separation of church and state. Um, apparently, they left out the famous uh, letter from Jefferson where he endorsed it. Uh, they downplay the role of the colonies in slavery. And uh, they push conservative judicial theories. One participant described the standards and workshops as, quote, very skewed with a very strong Christian fundamentalist way towards analyzing different quotes and different documents. There was a, a slide in the presentation which said, quote, founders expected religion to be promoted because they believed it be essential to civic virtue. Now, I've read a lot of the stuff by the founders. I haven't been able to find that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know anybody who's been able to find it. I know that one of the reasons they wrote the First Amendment, because they um, calling against the establishment of religion, is because we're looking at a period right after hundreds of years of religious wars in Europe. And they knew that if they had tried to establish one religion, they would be provoking opposition from the others. A lot of people don't know this, but in Great Britain, there is an established religion, the Anglican Church. Now, because of that, people who are members of the Congregationalist Church, the Presbyterian Church, all the Methodist Church in England and Catholic Church were all forced to pay taxes to support the Anglican Church. Well, what the founders realized is that if there was a established church here, people would be forced to uh, support it through taxation. And that would lead to civil war. So the founders did not want any connection between church and state because they knew how divisive it would be. You know, another participant just described as very disturbing that there were censors and the drive to propagandize particular points of view. This is what he created. But the thing is, if you look deeper, you see who his partners were. Because DeSantis obviously didn't write the curricula himself. Instead, he outsourced it to a place called Hinsdale College and the Bill of Rights Institute. Hinsdale College is an ultra-conservative private Christian school based in Michigan. And the Bill of Rights Institute was founded by Charles G. Koch and the Koch Foundation. And they, that's all Alec, they are the largest right-wing funder and think tank in the United States that pushes a right-wing interpretation of the Constitution in schools. I mean, it's pretend that this is a civics curriculum. This is an indoctrination program. This is the kind of thing that Putin is accused of in, in Russia. This is the kind of thing that was done in Nazi Germany. This is the kind of thing that was done in fascist Italy. And DeSantis is getting full support nationally from the Republican Party. You're listening to Professor Alan Singer from Hofstra University, historian, uh, educator. We're talking about, well, various trends on the right uh, as we speak. Um, you know, as you were talking just now, Alan Singer, I, I thought to myself that this uh, system of indoctrination in the public schools that's being promoted by some of the is being promoted by some of the very same types who have decried such things as so-called critical race theory, as you've mentioned, gender and ethnic studies as liberal, liberal or radical indoctrination, right? The uh, suddenly they're turning it around in much the same way that this past week we've heard numerous uh, uh, Republican politicians talk about. the uh, role of the FBI in this <laughs> raid at Mar-a-Lago. You know, we'll be opening up the phone lines at, oh, half past the hour. If you want to get in with a question, a brief comment for our guest today, Alan Singer, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. <clears throat> uh, you know, Alan, Alan, 
Yeah, go ahead. It's not just in Florida that we see the Republican Party committed to winning at any cost, to undermining democratic norms and processes, to blatantly lying to rally its base and to obstructing government operation. Not one Republican publicly changed their position on the January 6, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol after the congressional hearings. Not one Senate Republican voted in favor of the Senate public budget reconciliation bill to address the climate emergency. This is frightening. One of the things that even scary is Florida should be really scary because as the oceans rise, Miami is constantly being flooded. The salt marshes are backing up and undermining the water resources of Florida all the way up to Orlando. There are projections that by 2050, if climate change continues, half of Florida is going to be underwater. Yet here we have a state which has this dire threat, not only is ignoring it, but is lying about it and is trying to undermine efforts to address it. This is really scary stuff. I want to, uh, Alan Singer, I want to turn to some of the broader issues. In a, uh, that is some of the bigger issues that you've written about uh, that underlie uh, much of what you've already uh, addressed. <clears throat> you've written that what passes for conservatism in the United States today uh, should not be labeled conservative. What do you understand when you use the term? Okay. Well, the, the ideas which we generally associate with conservatism are belief in tradition, belief in law, belief in good government, um, limited government, but effective government. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Alan, that in um, the Republican response to the FBI exercising a legal search warrant to investigate uh, misplaced or stolen documents at Mar-a-Lago, uh, they start attacking the police. You know, during the Black Lives Matter movement, their attack on the left was that the left didn't respect the police. Well, attacking the police, attacking the law are not conservative values. But those are things that we saw in fascist movements in Nazi Germany and in Italy between World War I and World War II. You know, one of the, and we, by the way, we also see them in neo-fascist movements today in Oregon's Hungary, Erdogan's Turkey and Putin's Russia. I mean, these are echoes of the past, echoes of the present that are very, very frightening. We're talking about political extremists. We're talking about religious zealots. We're talking about intolerant bigots. We're talking about racists who appeal to the basic, in, basis instincts of their followers. There's nothing conservative about any of that, not in any traditional sense. Why do labels matter? Well. Some you know some some of our listeners are going to say, well, splitting hairs here. What's you know it's all all the same can of worms, if you will. Um, why do the labels matter? Labels are shorthands to to help us to identify things, to consolidate and understand what can be very complex ideas. So, conservative is considered to be mainstream. Conservative is within the democratic process of the United States. Fascist is not. Neo-Nazi is not. Authoritarian is not. What they are trying to do is to cover up neo-fascist, neo-Nazi authoritarian ideas by calling them conservative to give them legitimacy. 
Again, uh, 608-256-2001. In just a little bit, we'll be opening the phone line, 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you have a question or a brief comment with our guest today, Alan Singer. Again, 608-256-2001, extension number 9. <clears throat> so why your concern in your in your piece, you cite several recent studies that suggest a, a, a alarming and disturbing trends. The um, Violence Prevention Research Program, for an example. Well, you opened up, and I think it's a very poignant point, that this is the fifth anniversary of the Charlottesville uh, neo-Nazi movement running through the streets, uh, chanting, Jews will not replace us. Well, personally, I find that scary because I am a New York Jew. And they're talking about me. They're talking about my kids. They're talking about my grandkids. I'm not interested in replacing them. I'm interested in having a society that respects diversity. But that violence prevention um, study found that more than half of the people interviewed thought there would be a civil war in the United States in the next several years. And 40% believed that having a strong leader was more important than having a democracy. I mean, those are fascist ideas. But what was interesting, at least to me, is there was a psychological study that found that individuals associated with right-wing causes were much more likely to be violent or espouse violence than people on the left. They also found that right-wing individuals are more often characterized by closed-mindedness and dogmatism. If we look at terrorist acts in the United States in the, I guess the last 30 some odd years, these acts, these violent terrorist acts have all been done by the political right. That's not conservatives who wanna maintain society those are people who want to destroy it. Alan Singer, the United States has a strong conservative anti-democratic tradition mm. uh, dating back to the nation's founding. So what's different now? Well, in the past, people I identify as conservatives had a commitment to nation and had a commitment to law. Let me just refer to two, John Adams and Dwight Eisenhower. You know, in 1796, John Adams, who had been the first vice president of the United States, is elected president in a highly contested election. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is his opponent, and under the way the rules were written, Jefferson was his vice president. In 1800, Adams and Jefferson run against each other again, and Jefferson wins. But Jefferson wins because of the particularity in the United States Constitution. Under what they call the three-fifths clause, enslaved Africans in the South, every five enslaved Africans gave the South three additional votes. Well, what that meant, and of course the enslaved Africans weren't voting for themselves, we're talking about the plantation owners and the wealthy. Well, what that meant was Jefferson was elected president, not because he had a majority of the votes, as you would expect, but Jefferson was elected president because the South that voted for Jefferson had bonus votes because of the ownership of slaves. Now, you could have had Adams saying, this is illegitimate. This is wrong. Slaveholders should not be able to take over the government. Adams made a very important decision. Adams accepted the results of the election, although he was the conservative and more conservative of the candidates, because he felt the ability to sustain, maintain the nation, the ability to follow a constitution that was flawed was more important than holding on to power. In the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower, who was a, a very conservative man, did a lot of things I disagreed with. But Eisenhower 
sent American soldiers into Little Rock, Arkansas to support school desegregation. Because what he said is that his obligation as president was to uphold the law and the ruling of the Supreme Court. Again, what we have is conservative leaders who are committed to the rule of law and the success of government. What we have with Donald Trump, what we have with uh, Ron DeSantis is politicians who are tearing down government, who are challenging law, who are really trying to destroy rule by law. And that is very different. Let me make one other point. The origin of the stop the steal idea of employing the big lie is straight out of 1930s Nazi ideology. It was expressed, expressed by the Reich Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. And this is what Goebbels said. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. That is what the right wing in the United States is doing today. They are following the playbook of the Reich Minister of Propaganda in Nazi Germany. During World War II, the United States Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor of the CIA, they did a psychological profile of Adolf Hitler. And this is a quote. His primary rules were never allow the public to cool off, never admit a fault or wrong, never concede that there may be some good in your enemy, never leave room for alternatives, never accept blame, concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Now this report describing Adolf Hitler, it could have been describing Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis today and most of the leading Republicans in the United States. Alan, I believe we are in deep trouble in this country. And unfortunately, I, I fear the situation will worsen. A lot of people look at Donald Trump or now DeSantis, these types, as the cause of things, right? Uh, that, uh, that that everything was fine, what, before before Donald mm -hmm. Trump? When did it all start to change in your estimation? You've right. referenced in some of your writing um, uh, 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 Newt New Gingrich's efforts to close down the federal government uh, back in the 90s and so on. <clears throat> Okay, Talk I'm going about to start that. the change even earlier, though. Sure. I want to put it back to 1968. Because in 1968, when Richard Nixon ran for president, they developed what they called the Southern Strategy. And the Southern Strategy was law and order, but it was also using euphemisms really to inflame racial hostility in the United States. So what we have in the 1968 election is you have Nixon and you have George Wallace running on racist platforms. Wallace openly racist, Nixon kind of behind the scenes racist. Republican Party since 1968 has seen that strategy riling up the base, the white base, based on racial animosity as the key to success. And that's been one strand of what we're looking at. The other strand, as you mentioned, is in 1994, Republicans were furious at the election of Bill Clinton. Clinton had uh, only about 40% of the vote in 1992 because the vote was split three ways. Ross Perot ran as a uh, good government candidate and Perot, it seems, pulled away a lot of potential Republican votes that would have gone to George Bush one. So the Republican strategy, once Clinton took office, 
was to prevent Clinton from governing. Every action that the Democrats tried to put through, the Republicans tried to block. To the point that in 1994, Gingrich closed down the government of the United States because he wouldn't fund the budget. So we now have one trend, racism open and subvert, sub below the level, subliminal, and the other is obstructionism, a party that is not interested in governing, but a party that is interested in preventing governing. Those two become the strands. And a lot of historians are arguing that what we're seeing today is not a, that Donald Trump is not the cause of what we're seeing today. Donald Trump is the symptom that emerged from those two trends attacking democracy in the United States. Alan Singer, I want to shift to the Supreme Court. Okay. Oh, um, whether, whether it was intended to be or not, it, it's always functioned as a conservative break on social change, but, but it rarely rewrote the Constitution or re reversed its own positions as forcefully as it does today. Uh, there's a departure there going on. Well, again, if you go back and look at in the 19th century, um, the power of the court was never defined in the Constitution. It kind of backed into this role of interpreting the Constitution. But it usually, up until uh, 1857, it did it in a very narrow way, mostly on technical issues, trying to resolve issues between state and federal government, between states and states. And then in 1857, we have the Dred Scott decision. And here we have a Supreme Court dominated by Southern white men, basically declaring that the founders of the Constitution never considered African-Americans as having any rights and as being citizens. And so we have that first time the Supreme Court taking on that role, declaring that it will decide the law of the United States. Now, even after the Civil War, what we have is a Supreme Court that undermined Reconstruction efforts. So it's a Supreme Court that essentially was committed to white power and ruled by the elite. You know, people, the right wing argues that the Warren Court was an activist court. I don't look at it that way. I think the Warren Court actually returned to a much more traditional interpretation of the United States Constitution. I, I've read um, the debates in the House and Senate during the passage of the 14th Amendment. And it's very clear that in the 14th Amendment, they saw the government passing laws. Congress was authorized to pass laws to guarantee the rights of all Americans. What the Warren Court did is it returned to that original interpretation of the Constitution. The Warren Court was originalist and the Warren Court was textualist, looking at the 14th Amendment. Well, what's happened is the right wing in the United States, the authoritarian and the racist right wing, was infuriated. And they have spent the last 50 years trying to stack the court with people who reject the fundamental premises of the, the 14th Amendment, which protects the rights of all citizens, and the Ninth Amendment, which established that we have rights, even that they're not listed in the Constitution. So under Trump, but under both Bushes, what they did was they appointed people to the court that do not belong there. Alan, I'm not qualified to be on the Supreme Court. It's not because I'm not a lawyer. You don't have to be a lawyer to be on the court. I'm not qualified because I don't really believe in the sanctity of law. I am a ideologue who wants to bring about social justice. But the Supreme Court is supposed to be made up of people who place law on a pedestal. These current judges were picked to overturn law, not to put it up on a pedestal, not to defend it. And again, 
That is part of this right-wing authoritarian trend that we're seeing in the Republican Party and their efforts to impose it on the country. 608-256-2001, extension 9. Give us a call with a comment or question for our guest today, uh, historian, education activist, Alan Singer. Um, Megan tells us that we indeed have a caller that's been waiting a little bit to, to come in with a question or comment. Hello, Ron, you're on the air. Yeah, thanks, Alan, for the show. Thanks, Professor Singer. Um, my question is, um, in uh, Weimar, Germany, uh, the Hergenberg uh, firm controlled about 600 local papers. And we're seeing the similar thing happen to the media in this country, where the right wing is taking over newspapers or destroying them or uh, using radio uh, kinds of networks and so forth and social media networks to get out these uh, awful lies and layers of lies. And so, and in Weimar, of course, the left did not have that many papers. They only had about 200. Uh, so they were outgunned in terms of the local papers. So I'm wondering if the professor has any suggestions for the left on what they can do to rebalance the media landscape so that there are more uh, issues being debated and these uh, terrible policies are exposed. I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, caller. That's a hard one to answer. Um, One thing I think to note is that once Hitler took power in in Germany with Orban in in, uh, Hungary today, Putin in Russia, one of the first things they did was they used state power to control the media. They ended independent press. Now, the Republicans have not had the ability to do that, but their, their insidious uh, way of undermining the press has been to attack anybody who disagrees with them as fake news. And that's one of the reasons I'm frightened about a Republican return to power in 2024, because if they are able to um, undermine a free press by attacking all their opponents as fake news, uh, they might be able to actually stop the press. I mean, right now it has an intimidating impact. People are afraid to say and do things, but with political power, and within, if they certainly with increased political power, they can use the government to suppress press. So that's that's a very scary thing. The other part of the question is, you know, what do progressives do? And um, I think progressives have to not allow themselves to be intimidated. And I think that's what Alan's program is about. That's why I wanted to be on it. We can't be fearful. Whatever's going to happen, whatever they may want to do, we have to organize and fight back. And that means using social media, but it also means insisting that social media not just distribute their lies, the big lie. So it means we just have to keep going. One of the areas where the left media has been most injured has been with the collapse of the labor movement. When the labor movement was strong, the unions had their own newspapers and they supported the rights of working people. Hopefully, the new upsurge in labor organizing can produce stronger unions as a um, counterweight to the right wing and they will also begin to have a, a press that educates their members. I actually work with a part of the electrical workers union in Queens and they have this kind of clubs and they have monthly get togethers and they have invited me in to speak to uh, to people about issues just like these. And uh, so I welcome that opportunity because again, the audience is, it's not a left wing audience, not a right wing audience. It's a working class audience, but it's a working class audience interested in broader ideas. I think, on the left, we have to go out into communities, we have to go out and work with labor movement, and we have to introduce people 
to these ideas. I believe our ideas are strong. I believe social justice makes sense. And when we present ideas on broadcasts like these in our writing, uh, we can make a difference. You know, uh, we're getting close toward the end of the hour now, but we do have another caller. So let's get Mike in. Hi, Mike, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, you guys, um, you've mentioned Donald Trump today and you mentioned Ron DeSantis. Um, another one that I'm sure you would like to mention is Tucker Carlson. Um, my question is how frustrating for your guess is it that, that Tucker Carlson has uh, five times more viewers in the seven o'clock hour than uh Anderson Cooper and Chris Hayes on MSNBC combined. And recently I heard more Democrats watch Tucker Carlson than, um, than the other two shows. I'm a, I'm a scientist and I've been a Democrat for 48 years and I've had to watch Tucker now because I feel he's the only one who's been speaking honestly about COVID the last two years. I'm also extremely frustrated with being censored by big tech and the United States government. And this is not a this is not a right wing thing. You must admit big tech is left wing, is liberal. So I'll hang up and listen to your response. Thanks. Thanks for the discussion, though. <laughs> Mike, thanks, I hope Mike. you haven't been taking the bleach. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me let me say this. I, I have a a relative, a senior citizen, who watches Tucker Carlson, not because he agrees with him, because he finds him entertaining, he just finds him outrageous. Uh, I, I think there's that element, he's a showman. I think people like, uh, was it Alex Jones, they're showmen, people listen to them. But because they're effective showmen, they also present these poisons. Very glad that Alex Jones got hit with a $50 million penalty, and I hope it bankrupts him and got some off the air. Um, the other point you raised about the large tech, large tech is not left wing. Matter of fact, uh, this guy Thiel from um, Silicon Valley is one of the major funders of right wing Trumpian candidates. So tech is all over the place. But the other point is, um, I think you need, we need to distinguish between social liberal and left wing. Uh, the, the big tech tends to be social liberal, could be also libertarian. Uh, I don't see them as necessarily liberal or left on uh, issues where it comes to regulation, issues where it comes to taxation. Uh, they're major corporate powers, and they will support a corporate biz, pro-business agenda. I don't see uh, Facebook endorsing uh, large uh, taxes. The other thing is about the, the, the big tech companies, you know, Microsoft proclaims how it's a major supporter of uh, environmental responsibility. Yet in the last recorded year, 2021, Microsoft's uh, coal footprint, carbon, actually increased by over 20%. So I think it's a mistake to call tech left or liberal. Tech is about making money. Tech is about profitability. And they will go whichever way to win blows. You know, Alan Singer, we're yeah, again approaching. We have... Well, six, eight minutes left in the hour. I want to weave back, in, in a sense, maybe do a, a, a recap and, and head toward a closing. And that is, talk about what what Americans mean when they say they're conservative, the components or elements at present, uh, and what isn't there. Well, you know, ordinary people I talk to, including family members you know, who identify as conservative, you know, their, their basic position is, uh, I made this money, it's mine, it shouldn't be taxed, it shouldn't be going to other people, leave me alone. Uh, what I've tried to raise with them, and I think it's an important question, is that 
the climate crisis and the impending climate emergency is going to change politics in the United States because it's going to endanger everyone. You know, in, in the movie, The Fourth of July, all of a sudden everybody came together to fight the aliens. I think climate change is going to be the, the aliens that we're going to have to address. And I was, think, yeah. No, I was going to say that there was a Independence, in, Day. In, Independence Day with yeah, Will Day. Smith. Yeah. And I think that conservatives, true conservatives, are going to have to say we have to take government action to save the environment because we have to conserve our society and our civilization. But authoritarian right-wingers, I don't see them taking part in that. I don't see them willing to join in and support government action. If they did, they would not have acted this way on the, uh, on the, on the budget reconciliation bill. Talk about the element, and I often come back to this in many programs that I've done. Um, talk about the element of, of belief in American exceptionalism. Again, uh, yeah, I think that's been an important part of conservatism. But again, as I, I, I stated earlier in those quotes about fascist movements in Europe, fascist movements in Hungary, the conservative alliance and one of the groups recently brought this guy Orban in from Hungary to speak. Well, they don't, you know, they may say they believe America is exceptional, but their actions and their ideology parallel fascist movements abroad, and clearly they identify with those fascist movements. Tucker Carlson went to Hungary to speak in support of a fascist state. That's not American exceptionalism. That's American neo-fascism. You, you said before, and you closed out a, re, a recent article by stating uh, that the United States is in deep trouble. As we confront what is happening in this country, uh, that we, we need to stop calling the MAGA movement uh, conservative. That was one of your closings. Yeah. What else needs to be done? What is to be done? The historic question. Well, I, for me, the, the overriding issue is going to be climate change. And climate change is going to require government action, and it's going to require restriction on private corporate profit-making interests. That's going to be the, the issue for the next 30 years. And I say for the next 30 years, because if it's not resolved in the next 30 years, we may well reach a tipping point where it can't be resolved. Uh, the attack on government and the calling things like climate change false news puts all of our lives at risk. I mean, there are a lot of other issues, you know, gun control, uh, abortion rights, which I find very important to address. But I think that the the overriding concern is going to be climate change. I mean, the country has been on fire this summer. Out west, in the East Coast where I am, temperatures have been over the 90s for weeks. You go outside, you feel like you're baking. So if unless we respond to these giant climate changes, we are in deep trouble. And of course, at, at the political social level, there's this fascist trend that's not just here in the United States, but in, in numerous places around the globe. Uh, denialism, denialism, denial of climate change as being a key component, but denialism and blame, that is, it's someone else, it's the outsiders, it's the foreigners, it's whomever you want to blame yeah. that is the cause of our problems. Uh, but lots of grist for fascist mills Crisis has been at the root of fascist rise to power. And climate change could create that kind of crisis. And we're going to have to address it because fascism is not going to solve climate. Only a democratic movement can. 
So we, we, we do have a couple of minutes. What haven't we touched on? What would how would you like to close out? I well <laughs> one one of the th- couple of things that I've been involved in. Because I'm a teacher educator, so I I um, work with teachers and with pre-service teachers. And one of the things that we pushed very much is the need to engage high school, middle school students in civic responsibility and civic action. You know, one of the points that John Dewey raised, the, the educational philosophers, is that kids learn from experience rather than from what you tell them. So that if we want our young people to become civic acts activists and responsible citizens of democratic society they need the experiences doing that there was a, just a very interesting thing that just happened in uh, north Hanover, massachusetts a middle school teacher um, in recognized that one of the people accused of witchcraft in salem village in 1692 uh had never been exonerated and because of the legal oversight. Well, as a result, her eighth grade classes as a civic action program petitioned the legislature and the governor to get a bill included to exonerate this woman because there was no witchcraft in Salem Village. Well, the kids who did this, they learned to read primary source documents. They learned to evaluate evidence as part of this civic action program. They learned how their state government work and they organized and succeeded. And for the rest of their lives, they will know from this experience that it is possible to organize in a responsible way to bring about change. That's what civics is. And I would like to see that kind of activism in every school in the United States. Well, Alan Singer, if if people want to uh, reach you, uh, connect with what you write, uh, where might they go? Best way is to email me. Um, I'm a professor at Hofstra University in New York. My email address is catajf at hofstra.edu. That's cat and my initials ajs at hofstra.edu. If people email me, I'll put them up on my updates list. Well, thank you ever so much. As I said at the top of the hour, it's been a long time since I've had you on, and it was a pleasure this hour hearing from you, speaking with you. On behalf of our engineer today, Megan, and our producer, Rochelle, uh, and our callers, and you, our listeners, I want to thank you, Alan Singer, for being with us today. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by.